Yeah, you guys aren't quite as awake as those kids downstairs are on Sunday nights. As you can hear probably up here from time to time, they get a little rowdy. If you will, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Those of you who are here every Sunday evening recognize that we have started a series on the Beatitudes and working through it. Three weeks ago, Josh Womble started with an introduction in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. Two weeks ago, Pastor Josh followed that up with Blessed Are Those Who Mourn, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Uh, today we're going to be looking at verses 5 and 6, um, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to do two of those because just as we were off last Sunday evening for Mother's Day, we're going to be off next Sunday evening uh, because it's Memorial Day weekend. And so we'll not be having church on Sunday evening next week and so, uh, so that we can keep in order and, and, and stay on track uh, Josh has asked me to go ahead and do two verses tonight, so we'll take care of those this evening. I do appreciate the job that, that uh, Josh and Josh have done the last couple of weeks. had the opportunity, actually uh, yesterday, to sit down and listen to them uh, in their entirety, and they've done a great job listening to those online. Um, I'll completely agree with everything that they have shared with you thus far, and that's the great thing about the Word of God, amen, amen. is that we don't interpret this and come at this from different angles. But we all come at this knowing that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God and that God wrote it for a purpose and for a people and for a purpose, and He wrote it a specific way. And so we all approach it that way. And so when we get ready to interpret it, we don't have a bunch of different interpretations. So I can gladly stand up here and say tonight that I affirm that everything that they've said and agree with it. I completely agree with Josh Womble when he mentioned in the very first sermon that the Sermon on the Mount is a description of life in the kingdom of God. In fact, to borrow a quote of his that I really liked, uh, Josh Womble that very first week said that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes that we're studying now, is a description of the character of the king, meaning Jesus, and what his subjects should look and live like. And it's easy to see that, right? As we look through these first verses of the Sermon on the Mount, it's easy to see that, that this is what Christ's followers should look like. This is what we should sound like. When people look at us, this is the way they should see us. And it's tempted to look at these verses uh, sort of kind of put them in a vacuum and, and try to look at them as a list of instructions or guidelines by which we should live. And, and for those of us who are saved, that's absolutely the truth, right? For those of us who have been born again, the Spirit of God has quickened us and allowed us to recognize our sin and repent of our sin and receive Him as Savior and Lord and surrender to the Lordship of Christ in our life. Um, this is something that we should strive for. These are things that, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we should seek to live like these first few Verses in Matthew chapter 5 look like. But understand this. To the lost person, to the person who is, has not been redeemed, to the person who has not repented of their sins and surrendered, these Beatitudes, these first few verses that we're looking at these next, last few weeks and these next few weeks, they're condemnation. And they're condemnation because when you really look at this, there's no way that anyone can do everything perfectly that these verses say. These verses indicate a high living, a holy living, that for the person who's never been born again, it's just something that, that they, can't, they, can, they can strive to live that way, but there's no way that they can actually attain that. And so that involves, that, that engages the way that we look at this Scripture. So if you will look at me, look with me at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read, go back to verse 1 and read the first six verses of Matthew chapter 5. If you're ready for the Word of God this evening, please say amen. amen. 
Matthew 5, 1 says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, my Bible says the gentle. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. As it is with Scripture, the great thing, I I love the fact, I say this every time, I'm going to continue to say it because I affirm it. I love the fact that Josh does expositional preaching, expository preaching, meaning that he just simply seeks to expose Scripture when he gets up here. So we know and you know that by doing that, you have to take these things in context. You can't really properly understand verses 5 and 6 of this passage without looking back at verses 3 and 4. And actually, I actually want to get a running start. So if you will look back with me at Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. I want to set, I want to set a scene for you if you'll just uh, give me the grace to do that for just a moment. Look, look at this, these passages. Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee and he was teaching in their synagogues and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill and those suffering with various diseases and pains and uh, demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them and says large crowds followed him from Galilee and and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then in chapter five, verse one, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth. And he began to teach them. I want you to picture the scene with me, if you will, for just a minute. Here are these people. Jesus has started his earthly ministry. Jesus has been going throughout all Galilee. The end of, of, of chapter 4 describes it for you perfectly. And people are beginning to hear him. And people are beginning to see his ministry. And people are just beginning to understand. Now think about if Jesus were here. Think about that kind of ministry. And think about how awesome that would be. And how amazing that would be. And how that would, that would cause you to sit up in your seat. And that would cause you to listen a little bit closer. And here's Jesus doing all these wonderful things. And all the oohs and the ahs. And so people began to follow him. And they began to follow him more. And so he had great crowds beginning to follow him. And so he goes up on the mountain. And he sits down. And I can just picture everyone is on the edge of their seat. Right? Everyone's just, they're ready. What's he going to say next? Because we know that he's preaching as one who's not preaching from authority, but with authority, right? Because he is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. So he's preaching with this amazing authority and healing with these amazing miracles. And everybody's just sitting on the edge of their seat about what's he going to say. And look at the very first thing that comes out of his mouth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I don't know this, no one there, but I have to think that the people who were there, by the way, which were the Jewish people who had their hearts set on the Messiah, who were looking for the Messiah, who were thinking this could be the Messiah. Yahweh has delivered. His covenant promises are here. And Jesus sits up and they're just on the edge of their seat. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And he follows that up with, blessed are those that mourn. And then he says, blessed are the gentle or the meek. And I have to think that they might have thought that was a downer. They had to think, well, that's not what I thought I was going to hear. He's been doing all these great things. He's been speaking with such authority. He's been teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And I bet they were stunned and I bet they were confused. And, you know, if you read ahead to the end of Matthew chapter 7, it says that at the very end of Matthew chapter 7 that they were amazed. 
And it said that they recognized him as one who's teaching with authority. So at the end of this discourse, at the end of this sermon, they were, they were all in. To borrow Josh's analogy this morning, they were all in. They, they were there. But at the beginning, he, they were waiting on the edge of their seats and he begins to speak. And they're like, huh? This is not what we expected to hear. They expected Yahweh's fulfillment of His covenant promises to His people. They expected a Messiah who was going to come in and promote Israel to a place of prominence. Jesus might be that man. What's He going to say next? They were expecting this Messiah to be a leader, a military leader perhaps, a governmental leader perhaps, but someone who was going to deal harshly with the enemies of Yahweh, with those who had been oppressing the people of Israel. They were expecting... Particularly, that Rome would be made Israel's footstool. That Rome was going to be under oppression to them. And what does Jesus do? Jesus stands up and He starts saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, which is the verse that we'll look at first tonight. Ultimately, because we know Scripture, you know biblical theology, you know, you know the narrative, ultimately they reject Jesus. Amen? They reject Jesus because of this. Ultimately, they determined that this is not what we thought was going to happen. This is not who we thought he was going to be. So ultimately, they rejected him. I remember, I wonder if there were people sitting there listening to this sermon on that mount that ultimately rejected Jesus. They heard this. Because Jesus never changed from this message. When he starts out saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are those who are me, that's the story that he kept throughout his earthly ministry. And ultimately, they rejected him. Because they were looking for a dominant king who would bring about zealous reform and change. You see, by looking at this, and I won't rehash what Josh and Josh have already discussed, but at the beginning of every promise, we see the word blessed, which probably added to the confusion of the hearers. Eh? Why would someone who is poor in spirit be blessed? Why is someone who would meek be blessed? I agree with Josh and Josh that that word blessed probably more closely resembled satisfied. It, it resembles the word of contentment more than it would be overwhelming joy or happiness. The prosperity count would, would lead you to believe that that word blessed means that abundance or, or, or prosperity, uh, that, that, that this is what's, what, what you should expect by being these things. And what he was really saying, what Christ was really saying is satisfied or content are the poor in, city, or, uh, poor in spirit. Satisfied or content are those who mourn. Satisfied or content are those who are meek. Or gentle. Because these weren't, the man, these weren't the words of a man who was coming to establish an earthly kingdom. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were expecting. These were the, were the words of a man who was coming to establish the kingdom of God. And so they were probably confused. But I want us to look at these three verses. I want us to go back because I believe there's a noteworthy progression. I think there's a progression to be seen here in these first three blessings. Look with me, if you will, at Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit refers to a spiritual impoverishment. It refers to a spiritual bankruptcy. It refers not only to those things, but it it was the recognition on one's part that that's me. I am spiritually impoverished. I am spiritually bankrupt. It was a recognition that they were apart from God. The second one in verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn is an emotional response to verse 3. It's a response to realizing 
that I am separated from God. My sin keeps me apart from Him. I am spiritually impoverished. And because of that, it causes a brokenness over sin. It causes a heartache over who you are and your position with God. John MacArthur, a biblical commentator, pastor in California, says that spiritual poverty always leads to godly sorrow. Spiritual poverty poverty always leads to godly sorrow. What next? Finally, blessed are the meek or the gentle, my, my Bible says, because meekness is another step in the progression. It's meant to follow this godly sorrow over our spiritual poverty. That word meek there is an interesting word. If you study it in the Greek, it actually has a connotation of, of power under control. Power under control. And the best imagery I think that we can use of this is as a horse. Um, you guys, how many of you watched the Preakness yesterday? You know, watch the Preakness and California Chrome is won the second leg of the of the Triple Crown. And it always amazes me how much power those racehorses have. It, I mean, it is stunning how much they have. But if you watch that jockey when he's up there, the, the goal of the jockey is to be as still as he can when he's got the harness. Okay? And when he's turning that horse, he doesn't... He's not up there doing this right here. What's he doing? The slightest little is how he turns that horse when they're running that race. And so that jockey's up there and he's bending down and he's that horse, all that horsepower literally under him. And what's he doing? He's sitting there like that. And when he's ready to turn that horse, he doesn't. He just turns it a little bit like that. Power under control. It's the image of a uh, power under control is the image of a bit in a horse's mouth. Anybody in here ever seen the movie uh, Far and Away? Just showing my age, brother. Really bad. The first movie that I ever took my wife to see was a movie far and away. It was a uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And in that movie, toward the end, uh, they're getting ready to go on the Oklahoma land rush. And Tom Cruise's character gets up there, and, and he's got to choose between two horses uh, to, to get. He didn't have a horse. And to run in the race to get his land, he had to choose. And so he, uh, the guy there said, well, i got two horses. I've got this one. It's old. It's broken down. But it's dependable. It's broke. It's going to get you where you want to go. And here's this horse. And I had all the horses over there bucking around. He said, this horse right here will get you there faster, but it may not get you there at all. And you got to choose. So he chose the, the dependable horse, which died on him before the race. And so he had to go get the, the horse that had never been broken. And, and make a long story short, short, he gets thrown off the horse. And I know this is not the way you break a horse, and please don't call Peter on me. But I mean, he, he, he reached up at the horse and he slapped the horse like that right there. And ma- magically, the horse was broken, right? And so he gets up on the horse and he, he, he beats everyone. It just shows him racing past everyone. It's that kind of horsepower. It's that kind of, the, the idea of meekness here is not some kind of a wimpy, weak, uh, defenseless, powerless, uh, image. It is the image of, of power, but power that has been harnessed. Power that is under control. Because listen to me. If you listen to me, say amen. amen. Unharnessed, power, unharnessed power is dangerous. A horse that's broken is a dangerous horse. Wind that is out of control creates devastation. Anything that is unharnessed, medicine for instance... Medicine is a good thing, but too much medicine is a bad thing. Power that is under control is good power. The meekness that Jesus is referring to here is a power that has been harnessed. This was especially important for the Jewish people to hear because they were proud. They were a proud people. They had a heritage. 
They had an expectation. They were looking for a Messiah. They couldn't wait to put Rome under their foot and squish them. And so Jesus was telling them something that they weren't quite prepared to hear. Yet Jesus knew for them and for us today that they needed to know where true satisfaction comes from. Our culture today thinks uh, pretty much like the Jews does. Would you agree with me? Meekness is weakness. We see this all around us. I see it. Which kids are the ones that get bullied at school? It's the weak ones. It's the ones who are perceived as being weak. We see husbands. You very seldom see a wife bullying a husband. Why is that? Because the way God made men and women, the men are the strong, usually the physically stronger and more intimidating and imposing figure. So you see why husbands bullying their wives. Why? Because they're weak. In the world today, uh, if, if you have a controlled desire, because that's what, I'm, that's what this meekness is. This meekness is a controlled desire. If you have a controlled desire to put somebody else's needs in front of yours, and you try to do that in the corporate world, you're probably going to have a hard time going up the corporate ladder. Because that's not the way you do things. Get it now. Get it first. Get it before everybody else. It doesn't matter who you got to step on. It doesn't matter who, what you got to do. Be, be the one at the top of the ladder. Climb. Do it. I see it in sports. I'm big into sports. My kids play sports. I played sports 25 years ago. When I played sports, guess what the message was? Squash them. They're weak. You're better. My kids are now playing sports. Guess what I hear from coaches? Squash them. They're weak. You're better. we got athletes coming out on ESPN saying that all the time. Squash them. They're weak. You're better. That's the message all around us. Meekness is considered something that is bad, something that is not anything that you would strive for. Crush the weak. Our opposition to meekness, this meekness that Jesus is teaching here, comes in two forms today. Two forms. If you listen to me, say amen. Number one, self-justification. I want you to think about this. Self-justification. This is what I mean. Always feeling the need to prove yourself. Now, I'm talking about opposition to meekness. Always feeling the need to prove yourself. Always feeling the need to make a lot of yourself. How many times have you been around people who are always giving you their credentials? <laughs> They're always trying to explain themselves. They're always trying to build themselves up. And now, not all of that is completely and totally unhealthy, but when you're doing that for a self-justifying so that you will not be seen as a weak person, but as a strong person, that's not a good thing. That's... that's An antithesis to the meekness that Christ is talking about here. The second opposition to this meekness is materialism. Not only am I going to prove myself, but I'm going to get a lot for myself. I'm going to get it while I can. I want it all. And I'm going to build up myself a kingdom here. Notice that the problem with both of those things is this. It's the pronoun me. See, the problem with with people forsaking meekness is us, is it not? It's, 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 it's our desire. It's, it's the way that we want to be perceived. It's the way we want people to see us. And that is a problem. And listen to me. This is all very contrary to Scripture. This is a great thing, Josh. And, and this is one of them. I actually probably did not realize this until I was late 20s, early 30s. Which is a testimony to God's Word. And how God reveals things in Scripture. God does not contradict Himself in Scripture. Now, I, I, I heard that, but then I began to really recognize it 
probably about 10 years ago. God does not contradict Himself in Scripture. So when Christ says, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who are gentle, we have other places in Scripture, amen, to go and, and, and confirm that. Galatians chapter 5 lists gentleness as one of the fruits of the Spirit. This meekness as one of the fruits of the Spirit. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, which is meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord has forgiven you. Something very similar. A couple of uh, books earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, verse, tw- verse 1 and 2, he says, Paul instructs the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with meekness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love. What's the common denominator, though? The common denominator is we have been set apart. The common denominator is we have been called out of who we were and we have been made someone else. We have a new life. He's preaching to believers at Colossae and at Ephesus. And he's telling them, you are no longer that person who has to strive for strength. You are now the person who strives for humility, for meekness, for gentleness. And because of that, it changes us. The Bible gives us multiple examples of godly men who also illustrate meekness. And listen to me. Understand that I'm I'm the father of a 12-year-old boy. Can I tell you what? I want my son to grow up strong. I do. Now, I'm not quite as gung-ho as Josh, who puts my little girl on the uh, monkey bars, and there's pictures of her hanging on the monkey bars, and there's nobody around. I'm thinking, look at that. (laughs) I'm kidding, brother. I want Andrew to grow up strong. I want him to grow up to be a hard worker. Uh, When I was growing up, my dad wanted me to be strong, so, so my first jobs were mowing a cemetery and hauling hay for three cents a bale. Because he wanted me to grow up strong. Uh, he would not let me work anywhere else until he had me go work in the pencil factory. I mean, for a real job. Because he wanted me to grow up strong. Well, guess what? I want the same thing for my son. But I'm thankful that I have these examples of godly men in the Bible who illustrated meekness for him to balance that. I want him to be a hard worker, but I want him to be a meek man as well. Genesis chapter 13, Abraham, even though he was older, even though he was Lot's elder, even though he was the man that God uh, pointed to as who I'm going to build a nation from you, a holy people who will impact the world, Abraham gave deference to Lot. And when they were looking over the valley of the Jordan, he allowed Lot to choose which land he wanted to have. Joseph, in Genesis chapter 45, had been sold into slavery by his brothers, and yet through God's sovereign plan, Joseph is, is brought to Egypt, and he becomes... Uh, uh, over all of the household affairs of the king of Egypt. And lo and behold, here come his brothers, because there was a great famine in the land, and they came seeking food, and they come to Joseph. And does Joseph punish them? Does Joseph flex his muscle? What does he do? He illustrates meekness, humility, forbearance, gentleness. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 says of Moses, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And of course, Christ Himself, Peter, describing the the man Christ in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23 says, He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. 
While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Though he could have called legions of angels when he was on the cross and when he was suffering, he chose not to. He chose to be meek. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, to finish the thought on this verse, says that those who are meek will inherit the earth. Those who are meek will inherit the earth. And remember that dominion over the earth was given to man. If you go back and look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Dominion over the earth was given to man from the very beginning, but the curse of sin stunted that dominion or perverted that dominion. It made it imperfect. It made it incomplete. And whenever Jesus is saying here that the meek will inherit the earth, what He's saying is that those who are poor in spirit, those who have mourned, those who are meek, Later, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who have mercy or show mercy, will one day regain what's lost. You'll regain what's lost and you'll rule this domain with God. Flip with me, if you will, just really quickly. I promise we won't stay here a minute. Flip back to Psalm chapter 37, the 37th Psalm, I'm sorry. Still with me, say Amen. Psalm 37.11 has an almost exact parallel to Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Look at it with me together. Psalm 37.11 says, But the humble will inherit the land. Same word, humble. The meek, the gentle. Will inherit the land, and listen to this, will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Now again, those who would choose to teach a prosperity gospel will say, uh-huh, there it is. There it is. Be humble and you're going to get everything. You're going to have a lot. God wants to bless you. God wants to give you everything. But that's not what he's saying there. David wasn't talking. By the way, David wrote Psalm 37. David was not talking about affluence for, uh, for, for, for the sake of being affluent. If you go back and read verses 9 and 10, now let's do that. Psalm 37 verse 9. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the the humble will inherit the earth and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. David's not talking about those who are meek and gentle and humble are going to be affluent. He's saying those who are meek and gentle and humble are going to be protected. Those who are meek and gentle and humble are going to be taken care of. The evil and the wickedness that, uh, that afflicts them now is going to pass away and they are going to enjoy the peace of God that comes with ruling in dominion with God at the end of time whenever God comes, Jesus comes back. And those who are meek will inherit the earth and will not only do so alongside God, but without the fear of those who would seek to put them under their foot. One final word about meekness. We'll move off this. We'll be moving back to Matthew chapter 5 if you want to go ahead and be making your way back. Well, what does meekness look like today? If it's not some kind of a boastful, proud, arrogant, haughty perspective, then what does meekness look like today? Just a few thoughts. Number one, meekness looks like humility. looks like humility. It looks like somebody who humbles themselves before others. Meaning that they're not always trying to strive ahead of someone but they're always finding a way to serve others in, in, in humility. Meekness looks like contentment. 
It looks like, you know what, I trust that God is going to provide for me and take care of me and be there for me and give me everything I need. I'm going to be content with exactly where God's got me and exactly what God's got me doing. I'm going to trust in Him for everything. I'm going to look to Him to make me content. It looks like courtesy. Where's courtesy gone, by the way? Where's courtesy gone? When I was in high school, uh, I was uh, superlative, Josh. I was most courteous. I ain't never figured that out. I don't think I ever held a door for anybody or anything else. When we lived in Chicago and we were planting a church in Chicago, I would take my youth group to the mall in Chicago, and we would open doors for people. That was our ministry. We just opened doors for people. And they were like, what? Huh? What are you doing? I mean, what are you doing? What, are you selling something? I mean, they, they couldn't believe that we were opening doors for them because nobody, nobody was courteous. It's just as bad in Louisville now. If you go walking down the street and you say, hey, how are you doing today? They're going to what, what's your problem? You know? Someone who's meek, who places themselves, listen to me, controlled order, controlled power under control, putting themselves in the right position with others will be courteous. They'll be humble. They'll be content. They'll be peaceable. They'll be patient. They'll be forgiving. They'll be charitable. And we don't see a lot of that today, but listen to me, brethren. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ ought to do that. That ought to mark us. That's what the Beatitudes are about. Those who are participants in the kingdom of God, that's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be examples of these things to others. This gives us a good place to step over to verse 6. As those who have experienced and practiced this kind of meekness should also hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Go back to verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Again, these, these are sequential, meaning that these go in, in, in order. And listen to me, I also want you to understand this. I personally believe that while Christ is not sharing the essence of the gospel in the Beatitudes, I believe that we see the gospel in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Because look at this. Being poor in spirit, we recognize our sin and our lost estate. In mourning, we're broken over our sin and we turn away from it. In becoming meek, we're relinquishing power. We're relinquishing our way of doing things. And we are turning away from serving ourselves. And in hungering and thirst for righteousness, in essence, what we are doing is we find God. We, it, we, we are brought into a relationship with God and we continue to grow in that relationship with God. Is that not the gospel? Being, recognizing your sin, being broken over your sin, surrendering your right to your life and allowing God to come in and invade your life and capture your life and become your life. You have a new life in Christ and your relationship with Him grows. Hunger and thirst are powerful images that we can all relate to, right? Um, When I was about nine, ten years old, uh, we went to Houston, Texas. And my cousin, who was a bully, I guess I was weak, whatever, uh, I was, he was a bully. And uh, we went to Six Flags over Astroworld. And uh, we got away from our parents and for some reason did not have a meeting place. And uh, we also didn't have any money. And so this is Six Flags over Houston in July. So understand, a 9, 10-year-old guy who doesn't know when he's going to see his mama again, it's hot. And my cousin was a bully. He did not want to stop riding rides. Oh, man, we don't have to be anywhere anytime soon. We're just going to keep on going. And I was dying of thirst. That sticks with me, right? That's a physical image 
that has stuck with me all this time. I can remember what it was like to feel that kind of anguish and, and thirst. I can remember the joy that I felt when we finally bumped into our parents and they were able to buy us something to drink. See, because a starving person or a thirsty person can't think of anything but food and water. That's at the forefront of their mind. That captivates them. That's all that they can think about. And Jesus demonstrates with His analogy in verse 6 that just as food and water are required for physical substance, righteousness is required for spiritual substances. What's He talking about there? A person who's never desired to have a right relationship with God or be in a right relationship with God has not and is not part of the kingdom of God. You know that, right? That's, that's Gospel 101. The person who's never strived after God or sought God, never found God, never received righteousness, never had an intimate relationship with God, can never attain this. That's why, that's why when we read the Beatitudes, we're not looking at them as a checklist of virtuous conduct. These are not things that we do to keep good conduct. These are things that we do in order to have an intimate relationship with God. Uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness can take place in two ways. If you listen to me, say amen. Number one, hungering and thirst for righteousness involves initial salvation. Right? It involves initial salvation. We know that God sent Christ to die for us. And yet when we are born again, when we, when we receive the gift of salvation into our lives, it's not like we wake up one day and think, oh, I think that's a good idea. I think I'll do that. God, the Bible tells us time and time again that we are chosen. But look back at the, look back at, at even these verses. A person becomes, now think about your salvation. A person becomes convinced of their sin. Poor in spirit. They become broken over their sin. They mourn. They become desirous to surrender control of their life. Meaning that they become meek to the one person who can forgive their sin and give them a new life. As a person realizes these things, what do they do? They cry out in faith. They cry out for repentance. They cry out for Christ to intervene in their life. And this divine transaction satisfies their hunger and their thirst for righteousness. Because listen to me, if you listen to me, say amen. amen. When you're born again, this is what happens. The righteousness of God in Christ is, is, is accounted to you. It's placed on your account. And your sin that separates you from God and causes you to be lost is placed upon Christ. That's the divine transaction that takes place. That's the salvation that takes place. That hungering and that thirsting for righteousness, that's the transaction that makes it all, take, make, makes it all happen. And you receive the righteousness of God in Christ when that takes place. But that's not the end of it. Because a hungering and a thirst for righteousness is not just initial justification, but it's continual sanctification. As a person trusts in Christ and they follow Him and they desire to know more about Him, they desire to grow. I want to know more. I want to see more. I want to be involved in more. Teach me. Show me. Help me. Amen? And, 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 and that hungering and thirsting for righteousness remains. In the 63rd Psalm, David cries out, O God, Thou art my God. I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh yearns for You in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Beloved, are you there tonight? 
Because I am speaking to someone in here who has never received that initial salvation. The righteousness of God and salvation has never been imparted to you. You have never received that. I'm speaking to others in here who have known Christ for maybe a few months and maybe many, many years. Are you still hungry and thirsting for Him to the point that you desire Him more than anything? When I was uh, growing up in Tennessee, there was a, a, a young girl who was an eighth grader when I first became aware of her. And she was about this tall, literally. I mean, she was this tall and she had a braided hair. And her name was Tiffany Woosley. And uh, she was a phenomenal basketball player. I mean, she could do things with a basketball that I, have, I still have not seen to this day. And I've seen a lot of girls' basketball. And she was phenomenal. The next year, she transferred to a high school in my county. So I got to, to see and know her more. We were both in high school at the time. We had mutual friends, so I got to know her a little bit. And uh, she transferred. Uh, when she got there, they immediately won three state championships, two USA Today national championships, and they embarked on a 109-game winning streak. And I asked her one time, I said, Tiffany, uh, you, you, you are this tall. How are you so good? You know what she told me? I get up every morning at 4.30 in the morning, I shoot 500 shots. Think about that. That young lady was hungering and thirsty. She, told, she, she, she made no bones about it. I'm going to be the best basketball player in the state of Tennessee. She hungered and she thirsted for something so bad that it caused her to do something that you and I grimace a little bit and we think is extraordinary, but she was willing to get up at 4.30 in the morning and shoot 500 shots a day, every day. doesn't matter if it's rain, sun, sleet, whatever. She's out there shooting basketball at 4.30 in the morning. Well, guess what? Tiffany Woosley went on her senior year to be named Miss Basketball for the state of Tennessee. She was one of five players on the USA Today All-American team uh, nationwide. She played four years at the University of Tennessee, and she was drafted by the Houston Comets of the WNBA when it was just started. She attained what she was looking for because her hunger and her thirst was such that she could not do anything else. What does your hunger and your thirst look like for the things of God? That right relationship with Him involves you striving after Him. Are you doing it? Are you doing it well? Are you doing it with a sense of humility and a sense of expectation that God will be there for you? Psalm 107 verse 9 says, For He has satisfied the thirsty soul, and the hungry soul He has filled with what is good. Unique thing about hungering and thirsting in regards to sanctification, growing in Christ. You would think that you would get enough and get satisfied because it says here that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. But that's not the satisfaction that you think of. You think of, I'll reach the end of the line and I'll have all I need. But that's not the kind of sanctification. That's not the satisfaction that you'll get. What you'll get is a desire to learn and grow more. Josh, you know what thrills me? Looking over here at all these young adults, college-age adults that we have, they love being at your house. They want to have Bible studies all the time. They're tweeting about the things of God on Twitter. They're, they're talking about the things of God in the hallway. They're, they're, they're hungering and they're thirsting for righteousness. They're wanting it bad. And the more they get, the more they want. My favorite food is steak. I had steak on Friday night. I hardly ever get steak. I love it. But I don't have a lot of money, so I, I got it on Friday night. Jennifer got ready on Saturday night. She said, I feel like grinning out. What do you want? I said, steak. 
She said, you just had steak. I said, I don't care. I got a taste for steak. You know what she did? She threw more steak on the grill. So guess what I'm having when I go home tonight? Steak. I love it. It's my favorite food. You think I get satisfied with it, but I'm not. I'm going to keep on and on and on and on. When you hunger and thirst for the right kind of righteousness, your craving will never be satisfied like, like you think you'd be satisfied. The satisfaction that's talking about is that God will cause you to want more and more and more and more. And praise be to God that it's there. Listen to what Jeremiah said, and I'm done. Jeremiah said in chapter 15, verse 16, Thy words were failed, and I ate them. And thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Listen to that again. Thy words were found and I ate them. And they became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for you is this. My prayer for you is that you will hunger and thirst for righteousness and you will not settle for anything else. My prayer for you is that it will be so strong and so great in your life and you'll want righteousness so bad. And you'll strive for Him and your sanctification will be so great and so fine that you'll just want more and more and more and more. Jesus said that's the way it's supposed to be. To the poor in spirit, He satisfied them with the kingdom of heaven. To those who mourn, He satisfied with comfort. To those who are meek, He satisfied with the promise of inheritance. And to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, He satisfies first with salvation and then with a spiritual craving. To be ever closer to Him. That's my prayer for you guys tonight. Let's pray. God, thank You for our time together. I pray that uh, You will cause Your Word to sink deep within us. God, I pray that, that we'll contemplate this as we leave here tonight. And contemplate all of it, God. There may be somebody here who, who is just understanding their spiritual poverty. And, and the fact that they are poor in spirit. You have promised them the kingdom of heaven. If they will... Mourn over their sin. Be broken. Surrender control to You. Cry out to You in repentance. Receive You by faith. Give their life to You, Lord. That righteousness of God that comes through salvation will belong to them. And God, then for all of us who call upon the name of the Lord and have trusted in You as our Savior and Lord, who have surrendered to Your Lordship, I ask that You would cause us to to desire You more than we desire anything else. That we will hunger and thirst for You greater than we ever have anything of this world. And it will continue to grow stronger and stronger. Thank You for this reminder of Your greatness. Thank You for uh, these things which You have given us to strive for. Marks of a new life in You. Father, I pray that You be with us this week. Protect us. Keep us. I pray that You would allow us to impact lives for Your glory and for Your kingdom this week. And I ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all for being here.